Welcome to the first episode of our podcast's second season. Scary but true campfire stories brought to you by Dudes Camping. Hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening. And please, spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbor. Post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other media outlet that tries to dictate what you can and can't do. Like an unconstitutional mandate, a tyrannical ruler, and an unelected doctor on TV. Our goal is to share true stories of strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, or unexplained supernatural story and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. The first tale of our new season is a true story from a well-known musician, Van Walraven. Sometimes knowing too much about a subject can be detrimental, and sometimes not knowing enough can lead you into a scary, supernatural encounter with ancient, angry gods. Did Van experience the wrath of demonic forces? Was he accosted by the souls of a thousand slain Mayans? Or was it just an unknown natural phenomenon that left him running for his life? Sit back, relax, and enjoy The Curse of the Mayan Gods. I like to think I'm a pretty stable person. I mean, I've never professed to have seen Bigfoot or been abducted by UFOs. I don't even have time to wallow in conspiracy theories. I'm a practical guy. I work hard and usually see the simplest explanation as the correct one. But something happened in my youth that left an indelible impression on me, something that is unexplainable and, quite frankly, bizarre. The year was 1992. I was 26 years old and a well-traveled, professional, seasoned musician. Being on the road for months at a time and living in distant cities had its benefits and its drawbacks. One of the great advantages to this lifestyle was the free time I had during the day. I could spend hours poring over local culture, or I could spend my days surfing at sandy white beaches. I could lounge in a patio chair at a local bar, read a complete book, and still have enough time to nap before playing at the nightclub. I lived a lifestyle that even the posh Great Gatsby would have envied. I loved the freedom and ability to pick up and move to another location at a moment's notice. But it also meant long-term relationships were much more difficult to maintain. So I usually avoided them and opted for the benefits of a short-term relationship instead. While working in Cancun, I met a girl at the Pat O'Brien's club where I was working. Her name was Katie and she was from New Orleans. We'd been dating for just over three months. She was a petite brunette with inquisitive eyes and all the features you would expect to find in a girl interested in a musician at Pat O'Brien's. If I hadn't caught her eye as the entertainer that night, she would never have looked at me twice. Another benefit of being a traveling musician. There was plenty to do in Cancun. The nightlife was booming. The weather was perfect for bikinis and tank tops. We shared many walks on the beach, long days in the sun, swimming, snorkeling, and doing everything that tourists pay a considerable amount of money to do. 
Neither one of us drank alcohol or did drugs of any kind. We were just enjoying life like it was a permanent vacation. One of the interests that we roughly had in common was a fascination with the Mayan culture. Not just the superficial tourist fly-by-night-and-take-some-pictures interest, but a genuine enthusiasm for this very mysterious culture. Chichen Itza was only an hour-and-a-half drive from Cancun and was the archaeological site that epitomized the Mayans. After all, it was on all the postcards. I had read many archaeological books and articles about Mayan discoveries and mysteries unearthed, but she had never actually been to a Mayan site. I had made the drive eight times before to visit the famous Castilla, as it is called, really a four-sided pyramid-like structure with steps leading up to the top, where there was a stone slab or altar. I figured it would be a perfect place for us to visit and spend the night in the small motel, the only accommodations for 50 miles at the time, and then drive back to civilization the next day. A great way for us to get to know each other better, in more ways than one. We drove an hour and a half from Cancun, stopping at a toll road along the way and finally arriving at the small town adjacent to the archaeological site. We checked into a motel that felt like the contemporary interpretation of an Old West run-down cowboy stable. The room was the size of a large closet and smelled of dank, musty feet and cigarettes. Ragged green carpeting was peeling off the floor and left a visible brown path to the bathroom where countless other wayfarers had traipsed the only path that wasn't covered by the bed. We took one look at the mattress and began to regret our decision to stay overnight. I doubted much would be happening there, maybe not even sleep. We both agreed to set out while we could and see the site with another seven hours of daylight. We threw our bags in the room, locked it, and walked the short distance to the entrance to the archaeological site known as Chichen Itza or chicken pizza as we called it, because it was easier to say. The sun was scorching hot, and the 95% humidity intensified the uncomfortableness of the day. There was absolutely no wind or breeze to offer an ounce of respite for our unaccustomed American skin, and the jungle climate was absent of shade trees except for the surrounding thick wilderness. An area of vegetation had been cleared away for the tourist paths and the dig site, so we had to rely on sunscreen, sombreros, and sunglasses. Standing in line to pay the entrance fee, I noticed that the only thing separating us from the park was a chain-link fence about five feet high. I told Katie that we should just skip the fee and hop over the fence when nobody was looking. We both laughed at such an absurd idea, because in the 90s, the entrance fee was free on Sundays, the other days barely anything at all and in pesos. It was like hopping the fence to see a 30-cent movie. Once inside the park, we meandered around the site, surrounded by tourists in cheap sombreros recently purchased from Mexican street vendors, smelling of coconut sunscreen, and wearing brightly colored aloha shirts. Some spoke English, some spoke Japanese, and some spoke Spanish, but most looked like this was their last stop on the way to the afterlife. We were by far the youngest people in the park. That might explain why it shut down at five o'clock. As we passed unique Mayan ruins, I gave Katie a brief summary of what I had learned from reading in each area. 
The Mayan culture, I began, existed in the heart of the Yucatan for 2,000 years. This place here, Chichen Itza, I waved my hands to indicate the whole archaeological site, was the center of Mayan culture. It's on all the postcards, and they have the equinox twice a year. The first pyramid was built around 700 AD and was the center of the city. It's called a Mesoamerican pyramid, but it really has four sides and is stacked like steps. Then they built this larger one over top of the existing one in 1100 AD, probably the height of their civilization. I pointed at the large structure in the center of the park. It is called the Castillo, which means the castle. Katie looked at the giant structure surrounded by crowds of flowered shirts and sombreros, then looked back at me in disbelief. You're saying that the Mayans built this pyramid over top of another one? I don't remember reading about that, she said questioningly. And why would they do such a thing? I looked at her with complete conviction and fixed my gaze upon her in confidence. Katie, I spoke like an experienced archaeologist, I can assure you that the Castillo is built upon another, older pyramid. She looked at me with incredulity mingling her face. And just how do you know that, she returned. I have seen it with my own eyes, I slowly stated, waiting for a gasp of admiration to come. It didn't. You can tell me that story when we are done, then, she declared as she turned and walked toward the Castillo, leaving me abandoned to admire my own expert opinion. She didn't realize what a great adventure story I was about to recount after our tour. But a great story is only as good as the attentiveness of the listener. This story would have to wait until after dinner. Onward we trekked and stopped in front of the great stone-stepped structure that was almost 1,000 years old. At the time, this place was the seat of Mayan culture. I continued my brief lecture, pointing at the top of the pyramid. This was where they performed human sacrifices. Katie cringed at these words and said, I've read that is just a myth. I replied, Well, there are hieroglyphs showing that they would be sacrificed at the top of the pyramid and then rolled down the steps where the people at the bottom would then throng the body and toss it into the cenote over there. I pointed to a man-made well about 50 yards from where we were standing. I guess they discovered it in 1919, dove down pretty deep, and found countless numbers of bodies and skulls still covered in the jewels they adorned when sacrificed. When they were murdered, she corrected me in disgust. Yes, I guess we would call it murder by today's standards, I pontificated. But the Mayans were a proud and diminutive people, very fierce and brutal warriors. They would sacrifice the conquered tribes they had vanquished in battle. Katie's face turned sickly pale. What if they ran out of those people? She asked with displeasure. I could tell that I needed to get off this subject quickly, or her mind would never deviate from the brutality of this civilization, and I needed it to be elsewhere. When there were floods or famine, disease or drought... The Mayans thought the gods were angry at them. The high priest would simply come out and declare, We need more humans to sacrifice. So they would go conquer a neighboring tribe and sacrifice the fallen warriors to appease their furious gods. When they ran out of people to conquer, they began choosing young virgin girls from their own population. That's awful, 
she repulsed. I needed to wrap this up quickly because she was getting disgusted. What? I mused. Killing their own people or dying a virgin? Both, she said as she continued walking. There was hope after all. There is an island where the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbeans meet called La Isla Mujeres, where they would send their young women to ensure they remained virgins, where it was an honor to be one of these dedicated sacrifices. She looked as though about to wretch, and that is when I knew that my lecture was over. There is a time when a man comprehends when to stop talking, and that day I discovered the advantage of ceasing an uncomfortable conversation for the sake of future benefits. We continued to explore the amazing archaeological site. There was a stone stadium with the most bewildering acoustics. You could stand on one side of the court and whisper something to a person on the opposite side of the court, and they would be able to hear it clear as day. As brutal as the Mayans were, they were extremely sophisticated. They had invented a calendar devised from studying the stars that was much more accurate than the Gregorian calendar we use today. They were able to make some very interesting observations, and some of their calculations were extremely precise, like the world ending in 2012. Actually, that was just our foolish interpretation of a calendar that didn't go past 2012. The sun was beginning to wane, and we were both getting hungry. So we departed the grounds and walked back to the little town neighboring Chichen Itza. All the tourists were invading their buses and withdrawing back to Cancun, with the only visible eatery being a pizzeria that overlooked the parking lot called Signor Tony's Pizzeria. The pizza was everything you would expect from a Signor Tony, like eating a dry, compressed taco with insipid tomatoes. Not very appealing, but we didn't care. Katie was still reeling from my lecture on human sacrifice, and I was surprised when she blurted out through a mouthful of pizza, So what was this story you were going to tell me about the inner pyramid? Like a ray of sunshine parting through the clouds of rain in the northwest, she had given me the means by which to free her mind from the earlier distraction and put it where it needed to be in order to enjoy the rest of our evening. Well, I leaned forward, wiping my greasy hands on some napkins and began recounting my story. I was doing some reading on this particular site, and I found that you can hire a Mayan guide and he will take you to the inner pyramid, the one that the tourists don't get to see. She did not look too impressed, likely because she had done little reading on Chichen Itza, mostly on Tikal, Tulum, Cholula, or Aguada Phoenix, the oldest known Mayan monuments. I dismissed her innocence on the subject and continued. One Sunday... I rented a Volkswagen and drove out here by myself. I walked around all day trying to find somebody that I could talk to about getting into the inner pyramid. Right before they closed, I finally found a caretaker and asked him how I get to the inner pyramid. He had no idea what I was saying because he didn't speak a word of English. So, he finally asked another guy who promptly told me that the inner pyramid was off-limits to visitors. I told him that I read it in the travel guide and I wanted to hire someone to escort me. He then told me that I had to be Mayan to get into the inner pyramid. I was insistent on what the book indicated and he was just as insistent that it was not going to happen. So what did you do?
Katie asked. Well, I paused, thinking how unscrupulous this was going to sound. I bribed him. I whipped out a hundred bucks, and he said, okay. She started laughing at my determination to go where very few people had ever been. If only she knew. So, ten minutes later, this stunted Mayan guy shows up with a flashlight and beckons me to follow him. He starts walking in the opposite direction from the pyramid, and I'm wondering if he misunderstood me. I'm trying to tell him the pyramid is in the other direction, but this dude only speaks Mayan. The guy who took my hundred dollars is smiling at me sardonically and pointing at the Mayan with a jeering finger. Finally, the guide turns around and blinks his flashlight at me twice, indicating for me to follow him. What the heck, I thought, as I trudged along behind him. He took me in the complete opposite direction of where I wanted to go, eventually leading into the jungle. I thought maybe he was going to show me something that is not public viewing, like a newly discovered pyramid or Mayan hieroglyphs that curse anyone who steps foot into the innermost chamber. Instead, about a hundred yards from the pyramid, he stopped at a recessed area that was overgrown and covered by vegetation. He walked down into the foliage and moved some brush aside, revealing a rickety old door with a rusted lock, the kind you see in movies. He pulled out a ring of keys and jiggled one of them in the keyhole until the lock unlatched and it swung open. I peered into the darkness as the Mayan guide started walking down the steps of an earthen tunnel with no lights. He turned to look at me as if to say, Follow me, dummy. This is what you paid for. With a breath of excitement, I stepped into the tunnel and began walking down a ramshackle wooden stairway that went at least fifteen feet below ground. I was hit with the stench of moist dirt and the pungent odor of decaying earth as we trekked one hundred yards back toward the Castilla with only his flashlight and my insatiable curiosity. I was thinking, man, this is good. I felt like Indiana Jones being led by his guide through a tunnel of spiders, snakes, and booby traps, though I saw none of those. We finally got to the other side, where I noticed the fading stones of the pyramid partially buried underground, and a very dark, very narrow stairway leading up into some black chasm of unknown perils. The Mayan guide hands me the flashlight and points to me, then points up the stairs as if to signal where I ought to go. Then he points to himself and shakes his head, no. I hand the flashlight back to the short man and tell him that he has to go with me. He is the guide, and I don't know what to expect. I could be speared by a pungy spike trap or chased out by a giant boulder with one wrong step in the dark. He looked at me with vexation and simply thrust the flashlight into my chest, cursed in Mayan, and pointed up the stairs. He sighed and took a couple steps backward to make his declaration final. I just shrugged and turned towards the mysterious abyss. I left this dude in complete darkness as I entered the confined crevasse, ascending into an unknown void. Whatever awaited me at the top of this corridor was more frightening to this local guide than standing alone in an underground tunnel surrounded by pitch blackness. This truly was an Indiana Jones moment. I reached the ceremonial chamber which was at the top of the inner pyramid. My heart was racing as I realized I was seeing something ancient and mysterious. 
something that very few people have ever seen. You could read about it in a book, but I was entering the inner chamber and seeing it with my own eyes. I emphasized these words and watched Katie's expression as she was completely enthralled by my story. She was gaping indistinctly at me, and I could tell she was imagining my narrative like a movie. When the interval in my account pulled her back to reality, she blinked several times and refocused her eyes. What? What did you see in there? she asked. I stepped into the chamber, I continued, lowering my voice for dramatic effect. And it was like the whole room lit up. There were no windows and no doors except the one I entered through. I looked around, and the first thing I noticed was the paint on the walls. Paint? she asked skeptically. Yes, I replied. The paint everywhere else had been washed away with time, but in this room, I saw bright blue paint intermittently clinging to the walls. At one time, this room was probably inundated with color. Is that all you saw? she asked, disappointed. No, I said. No, I still haven't gotten to the best part. I continued as the wonderment was returning to her countenance. In the center of this compact room was the stone slab where the previous Mayans performed their ritualistic sacrifices. You could still see the stains of countless oblations. She quavered at the revived image of human sacrifice and asked, Did you... did you feel... anything weird in that place? I had to think for a moment. Actually, I don't remember. I just remember being excited at what I was seeing, because next to the slab was something that I had read about, an artifact that some experts deny exists. But I saw it. I saw it with my own two eyes. Yeah? What was that? She asked, intrigued. Well, I resumed with a pitch of expertise. Next to the slab was a very crude sculpture of a jaguar. I wouldn't even say it was a jaguar, more like a symbol of a jaguar. Very rudimentary, very primitive. But the eyes of this jaguar were set with two very large, very deep red rubies which glimmered and seemed to light up the whole room when I beamed the light on them. Katie's eyes lit up like the jaguars at the mention of rubies. I really had her attention now. She was imagining whatever it is that women imagine when a man mentions rubies. Good thing I didn't mention diamonds. Rubies are the most precious gemstone in the world and were not indigenous to the Western Hemisphere at this time. Those rubies were placed there by the Mayans before 1100 AD, and they had to have come from Europe. It's still a bit of a mystery, and there's not much consensus on this, but I saw the rubies in the eyes of the jaguar. She looked astonished at this declaration. But America wasn't discovered by Europeans until 1492 by Christopher Columbus. She repeated the mainstream mindset of thinking. Actually, there is a place in Newfoundland, Canada, that has proof the Vikings discovered the Americas 500 years before Columbus. It's called La Ansrao Meadows and has the remains of eight wooden structures left behind. Also, Icelandic stories tell of how Leif Erikson stumbled upon a new land far to the west in the 10th century. He called it Vinland the Good. And here's another mystery, I continued. The sweet potato is native to South America. Yeah, she said inquisitively. 
sweet potatoes have been found in the Polynesian culture as far as a thousand years ago. How did they get there? Hmm, she said as she contemplated this modern archaeological mystery. She looked back at me and asked, How do you know all this? Because I don't have a lot to do when I'm not playing music. I read. I smiled at her. I looked out the window and saw that it had grown dark as we sat and talked in the pizzeria. There was only us and a man behind the counter, probably Signor Tony. Outside, it was completely dark and deserted. Katie looked worried and asked, How are we going to find our way back to our room? It's so dark out. I had been here so many times that I could find my way around with my eyes closed, but I brought a flashlight just in case. I showed her the small torch I had brought, which seemed to ease her mind. Well, what do you want to do now? She innocently asked. I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do, but the night was still young. I looked at my watch and choked. It was only 7.28. I was used to going to bed at 4 a.m. I really hadn't considered that there's nothing to do in Chichen Itza after dark. Unless... You want to have some fun? I asked. She looked at me furtively. What do you mean by fun? She inquired. You want to sneak into the park? There's just a chain-link fence separating us from the site. I don't know if she thought this was a good idea or just considered that it was either that or sit in our dingy room for the next six hours watching Mexican television. Why not? She shrugged and stood up. It sounds adventurous. I need a good adventure to brag about with my friends. Oh, really? I thought. Even Indiana Jones supplemented his adventures with a little intimate archaeology. We stepped outside to a deafening litany of bugs chirping, animals barking, and creatures squeaking in the surrounding jungle. I was taken aback by how loud it was. The darkness had brought on a chorus of amorous creatures competing to see who could be the loudest. I could tell the heat and humidity had not changed at the approach of nightfall and was still oppressive and muggy. We hopped the fence with ease and looked around to see if anybody saw us. There were no lights, no people, completely deserted. We had free reign of the famous Chichen Itza, and so we took advantage of it. We walked around the grounds with the flashlight beaming and no fear of being seen. The moon lit the jungle and the animals blared loud enough to cover any noise we made. The air was sultry and not a breeze was stirring in the trees or cooling us off. After the excitement of breaking the rules wore off, I couldn't see much advantage to wandering the grounds at night, since we already spent the whole day there. Our eyes had become accustomed to the dark, so we continued without the need for illumination of the flashlight. We walked over to the Castilla and climbed the steps to get a better perspective from the top. The serene view of the stars was magnificent amidst the chaos of the jungle below. We gazed at the sky and enjoyed a moment of romance. I kept thinking about the repulsive bed awaiting the terminus of this passionate train we had boarded. I looked around the top of the Mayan pyramid for a place to sit and saw only the stone slab in the ceremonial chamber. What the heck, I thought. If it doesn't freak her out, then I don't care. At least I know what happened on this slab. There's no telling what has happened on that bed. 
I took her by the hand, and we both sat on the edge of the stone. I didn't think much of it at the time, but looking back, the stone was surprisingly cold for being exposed to the South American sun all day and 95-degree weather at night. I'll admit that we weren't really watching the stars any longer. We were occupied with something else. The desires of youth had overtaken us, and I was beginning to explore a little more adventurously. As we were becoming more involved, from a side glance, I observed that the stone slab was just about the right size if this swashbuckling caper took an ardent turn. We were no more than a minute into our embrace when I noticed that the jungle chorus of bugs and animals had ceased in unison. A deafening silence of the jungle was so sudden that I thought I had temporarily lost my hearing. I had heard about blood rushing to certain parts of the body and leaving an insufficient supply to the brain, thus leaving the cognitive abilities of men in certain situations to be desired. But I had never heard about losing one's hearing when intimacy was on the horizon. Then it came from nowhere, and yet it came from everywhere. The most chilling arctic wind thunderously engulfed us, overwhelming our senses and leaving us stupefied. I felt my shirt being shaken from my body, and a few buttons flew off into the darkness. My skin was numb as a bitter chill drowned out the senses. Katie's brown hair was circling around her head and whipping me in the face. The noise was like sticking your head out of a race car in a snowstorm. This rogue wind just kicked up out of the stillness and swept freezing cold wind on us for a total of 10 to 12 seconds. Then, just as it began, it suddenly stopped. It took several seconds for me to regain my composure, and I looked at Katie. She was sitting, dumbfounded, with her hair trussed about her head like a confused Barbie doll. I touched her shoulder, and she looked at me as if suddenly realizing what happened. Without saying a word, she bolted down the steps of the pyramid, and I was quickly on her heels. I felt like I was running away from somebody chasing me with a chainsaw. I don't believe two people have ever come down those steps as fast as we did that night. We leapt over the fence and ran as quickly as we could to reach the motel door. Fumbling for the key, I quickly opened it, and we both floundered into the room, slamming the door and quickly turning the latch bolt lock. I leaned my head back against the door, desperately trying to catch my breath. Katie had collapsed on the bed with her arms spread eagle and was staring at the ceiling. I could hear her panting heavily and muttering to herself something about a curse. I hadn't really considered how impudent we were to make out on the sacrificial altar, where countless bodies had been tragically bludgeoned to death trying to appease a bloodthirsty god. Neither one of us were drinkers or smokers, and there were no drugs involved in this encounter. We were completely sober. We weren't practicing witchcraft or attempting necromancy. We weren't trying to invoke demons or perform a seance. We were just trying to make out. I couldn't bring myself to sleep in that nauseating bed, and she was too shaken to sleep anywhere after what had happened. We didn't actually talk about it until we were about 20 miles from Chichen Itza and on our way back to Cancun. We both verified each other's experience and were baffled and frightened as we drove through the night. 
I dropped her off at her friend's apartment where she was staying. That was the last time I saw her. I pretty much attribute the dismissal of the relationship to the incident. Maybe I was too eager to impress her with my knowledge of the Mayans and their brutal ways, so far removed from what we deem as civilized in our culture. Or it could have been my anxious desire to partake in a venture that required a certain appliance that was unavailable to us, thus resorting in the sacrilege of demonic proportions. Either way, we both moved on and pretty much chose to ignore the thing that we couldn't explain. That was until the end of August 2005. I was watching the coverage of a Category 5 Atlantic hurricane called Katrina. It caused $125 billion in damage and over 1,800 deaths. With wind speeds of up to 174 miles per hour, it caused more damage than any other tropical cyclone in history at the time. It tore through the city of New Orleans and the surrounding area like an angry Mayan god, upset at two kids for trying to get lucky on their altar of sacrifice 11 years earlier. Now this might sound like a guilt complex, and maybe it is, but the fact that Katie's real name was Katrina, and she was from New Orleans, made me feel somehow responsible for those innocent lives. Since that day, I always wondered, did we anger the Mayan gods? Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping, narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Click the PayPal link below if you wish to support this channel and donate any amount to keep us going. You can purchase audiobooks from Matthew S. Newbold on Audible and iTunes. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail to see how you can receive a free copy. Please hit the like button if you enjoyed this story and leave a comment. Any character's likeness is pure coincidence. If you were offended by any of the portrayals in this story or felt that we were appropriating culture in any way, please visit www.wedontcare.com and leave a message. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.